The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Homage to the Buddha, our original teacher, the supremely enlightened one. Gratitude for your journey, for your resolve, for your fearless example. Gratitude for your instruction, for your teachings, for this practice, for this path of liberation. Gratitude to you for this Sangha, for these teachers, for this manifestation of the path. Homage to you, Buddha. So we are entering the belly of the beast. <laughs> if the beast is Rahatsu, we're sliding down the throat right into that first chamber of the stomach. And um, <clears throat> a couple things coming up for me. Definitely appreciating uh, the way that Rahatsu is framed as a celebration, um, an observance, an acknowledgement of the Buddha's enlightenment. So however we may relate to that, it's right there in the center. And um, Daida Roshi appreciating his flexibility and, and creativity and um, seeing that by moving the traditional observance of Rahatsu, Buddha's enlightenment, which would be December 8th, to the end of the year, it creates this very juicy <laughs> bridge into the new year. So I wanted to share um, a... Uh, uh, a, a part of the retelling of the Buddha's enlightenment um, as a jumping-off point for some further reflections, which I hope will be helpful. Um, so this is from Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Old Path, White Clouds, which is such a wonderful book. It's a retelling of the life of the Buddha. Um, and... He takes his time, as you can see. It's all drawn from um, the sutras. I think he probably did his homework pretty thoroughly. And then I think he used his own um, sense of what would be beneficial to kind of round out the story. <clears throat> so this is um, the, uh, the evening of the Buddha's enlightenment. Okay, here's story time. 
Early that evening, Gautama did walking meditation along the banks of the river. He waded into the water and bathed. When twilight descended, he returned to sit beneath his familiar papala tree. He smiled as he looked at the newly spread kusa grass at the foot of the tree. Beneath this very tree, he had already made so many important discoveries in his meditation. Now the moment he long awaited was approaching. The door to enlightenment was about to open. Slowly, Siddhartha sat down in the lotus position. He looked at the river flowing quietly in the distance as soft breezes rustled the grasses along its banks. The night forest was tranquil, but very much alive. Around him chirped a thousand different insects. He turned his awareness to his breath and lightly closed his eyes. The evening star appeared in the sky. Through mindfulness, Siddhartha's mind, body, and breath were perfectly at one. His practice of mindfulness had enabled him to build great powers of concentration, which he could now use to shine his awareness on his mind and body. After deeply entering meditation, he began to discern the presence of countless other beings in his own body right in the present moment. Organic and inorganic beings, minerals, mosses and grasses, insects, animals and people were all within him. He saw that other beings were himself right in the present moment. He saw his own past lives, his births and deaths. He saw the creation and destruction of thousands of worlds and thousands of stars. He felt all the joys and sorrows of every living being. He saw that every cell of his body contained all of heaven and earth, and spanned the three times past, present, and future. It was the hour of the first watch of the night. In the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, there are three watches of the night. And in the second watch, he sees uh, the whole wheel of samsara, all of the births and all of the deaths of every being. And he sees how karma conditioned these births. That what we do in this life bears fruit, even if we can't see it in this life. He saw that these births and deaths were but outward appearances and not true reality, just as millions of waves rise and fall incessantly on the surface of the sea, while the sea itself 
is beyond birth and death. If the waves understood that they themselves were water, they would transcend birth and death and arrive at true inner peace, overcoming all fear. And at this, Gautama smiles to himself, the smile of wondrous understanding, gaining insight into the destruction of all defilements. This was the second watch of the night. At just that moment, thunder crashed and great bolts of lightning flashed across the sky as if to rip the heavens in two. Black clouds concealed the moon and stars. Rain poured down. Gautama was soaking wet, but he did not budge. He continued his meditation. Without wavering, he shined his awareness on his mind. He saw that living beings suffer because they do not understand that they share one common ground with all beings. Looking deeply into the heart of all beings, Siddhartha attained insight into everyone's mind, no matter where they were, and he was able to hear everyone's cries of both suffering and joy. Gautama felt as though a prison which had confined him for thousands of lifetimes had broken open. So, if you can take that in as inspiration, I'd like to offer, on the other hand, a short anecdote that I read on a Buddhist website about how Trungpa Rinpoche at the start of a lecture, began by repeating the word hopeless every five to 10 minutes with silence in between. Hopeless. Hopeless. Hopeless, hopeless. Hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. Give it up. Give it up. Totally hopeless. Yep. So here we are on the razor edge of inspiration and hopelessness. The vista of infinite possibility and the close at hand ground of what you see is exactly what you get. It's hopeless. When the Buddha finally um, decided to teach, that first noble truth is kind of a version of that. That exalted experience of his mind and body completely opening up 
of great unity with the whole of creation, divine knowing spreading in all directions, when he actually started to think about how to help point people to their own liberation, he started with, life is suffering. It's hopeless. All of the energy that you take to try and be happy and set your life up in some way that will give you deep and lasting fulfillment, whether it's work or relationship or where you live or what you do or having a family or not having a family, none of it is going to give you what you're looking for in an ultimate sense. It's hopeless. Tough love. And there's a way in which Rahatsu is like uh, a good cooking pot for what comes underneath or on the other side of like give up all hope. Because of course the second noble truth is there's a reason that there's suffering. It's not just random, it's causal. There's a reason. And because there's an origin of suffering, it's possible to put an end to it. But just not by the way that we normally go about it. And so here in this context, hopeless, meaning please forget about any idea that things are going to get better, that you might break through and wind up on the other shore. This is it. You are at the other shore. What happens when we give up hope? Well, we do it together so that that's combined, hopefully, with uh, <laughs> optimistically, with um, the sense that the possibility is right here. It's all been like put together and created to keep you right here. This is where the other shore is, don't depart. And the longer the days, and the shorter the nights, and the more tired we get, and the more hopeless the whole thing seems, the more our body hurts, the more we think there's no way. But here everyone is. Here we are. We brought ourselves here. Could it be? 
Could it be? What has to happen for the other shore to come into view? We talk about the Buddha's enlightenment and of course the metaphor of light. I mean, it's, it's a potent metaphor because in some ways there's an accuracy to it. We say the absolute light luminous throughout the whole universe. Radiant light. Dogen Zenji says the entire world of the ten directions is the radiant light of the self. The entire world of the ten directions is within the radiant light of the self. And we glimpse that light. We glimpse it. Sometimes it's like blinding, and sometimes it's just a glimmer. All those moments were just for a second, for an instant, we brush against, ah, oh, complete. Where did it come from? What is that? Pay attention. It can go so fast. Sometimes it's not even that we see it directly, but it's sort of like indirectly, like the refraction. This morning, I was sitting on this side of the zendo for Orioki, and I looked out the window, I raised my eyes, and the whole of the forest on that side was pink. Yeah. So I cheated, I turned to look, and oh, I saw the sun, sunrise coming up in the east. But you know what? As brilliant as it was, the light reflected on the meadow was even more beautiful. So even in a moment, we can glimpse that radiant light, even just to feel into your body, choose an ache or a place of tension and just let your awareness rest there without judging, just the sensation, the tingle, the pulse, the whir. That's like the reflection. It's like that Emily Dickinson poem Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. So the main practice is seeing. Seeing in the broadest sense, meaning awareness, meaning feeling, meaning awareness. 
meaning trusting, trusting your embodiment. And we can do Sishin, a practice like Sishin works, because we have some degree of trust in practice, in, in, in Buddha Dharma, maybe in this place. And so in situations where we would ordinarily be like, I am out of here, we can stay. And that's the potency of it. And whether we relate to this way of phrasing it or not, that is refuge. That is taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. We're relying upon these things. We're relying upon these things, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and loosening our grasp on those habitual avenues of pursuit. And this is what lets us begin to develop our capacity to look deeply. In Thich Nhat Hanh's retelling, he, uh, he uses that phrase again and again, looking deeply, looking deeply. So we're learning, what is it to look deeply? Looking deeply, life is suffering. As we, as we recognize this, for some of us, I'm sure it's instantaneous recognition that may be what made you trust Buddhism. For others, it's a longer unraveling. Really? That's not really how I experience things. I feel like I have a lot of joy. You looking deeply, deeply, what is this pervasive quality of unsatisfactoriness? That word dukkha has uh, multiple translations. Suffering is the most common, commonly accepted, but dis-ease, um, even, even stress, dissatisfaction. And the cause, the cause is, is, our, is our grasping. So like, so important to see it and so humbling and like it, as far as I can tell, that does not wear out. Like basically at any moment where there's any amount of dis-ease, I can look and be like, okay, what am I holding on to? I joined Sishin a little bit late because I was getting over a cold and, um, you know, midway through the, the first full day, I entered and I, I was like, okay, I was like trying to like catch up, whatever. I was like, Brrr. and I was like, oh, this is like, uh, uh, uh. and I was like, wait, what are you holding on to? I was suffering, you know, not acutely, but not at ease. What was I holding on to? Well, I had an idea of where I should be, and I was trying to get there. It's classic. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that grasping, that clinging, tanha, thirst, often translated as desire, a problematic translation. And um, this came up, actually, 
in uh, one of our monastics meetings a few months ago. Um, you know how we have the four bodhisattva vows and we chant, desires are inexhaustible, I vow to put an end to them. And we were talking about that and Shugen Roshi was like, yeah, you know, it's not really desires, it's afflictive emotions, it's the kleshas. And we were like, okay, well, can we chant that instead? He was like, oh, but we've been doing this, like, what would it take to change it? Like, and we were all like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. And then I was telling somebody about it, and they were like, no, you should change it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can understand it correctly and then spread the word, right? Because desire, desire has, um, desire holds a lot in it. Because we can talk about bodhicitta and the desire to wake up. Like, that's so important. The desire for liberation, that has got to be moving through us with some energy. In a session like this, that's so important to be like feeding that yearning. But it's the like clinging, grasping. Like, you, we have to like begin to feel into in our body like, what, what is grasping and clinging? And what is like wholesome aspiration, longing? Look, see. If we trace the craving in any moment all the way back to its root, we come to that, what the Buddha discovered we're grasping at ourself. You know, I think this is easiest to see when we're talking about like self-created suffering because there's a lot of suffering in the world where while I think the Dharma uh, holds true, it becomes more subtle and more edgy and um, if we can take care of our self-created suffering, like we're doing great and we'll be in a much better position to take care of all of the other kinds of you know, social ills and, and um, wrongful uh, sort of other created suffering, co-created, I should say, suffering. But if we can just begin with our own self-created suffering and look to see where, where does that originate that grasping, where does it originate? It comes down to ourself. I had this um, humbling moment the other day. I was monitoring, and um, someone overslept, and it was raining. It was like the sleet rain that was like pouring down and like cold and so wet and I was like oh my god really I have to like go up the hill in this I like barely got down in one piece is how I felt so I was totally feeling like uh and I like went into the hallway and I like put on my like flip-flops and I was like gonna go downstairs and change and head out into the weather and um Roshi was doing Canton, and he was coming out with his, with his attendant, coming out of, of, the, uh, of the Buddha hall, just as I was, like, you know, putting my, my flip-flops on. 
And this is so weird. I still don't totally understand it, but like I, w I like took an extra moment or two to put on my flip-flops because I wanted Roshi to see that I was suffering. <laughs> like I was gonna have to go out and wasn't the weather so bad and like, can't you even believe that like somebody slept in and like da 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 da. Okay, so this is all, I mean, I didn't say a word, that would have been so, but I just like put on my flip-flops, that was going through my mind and went downstairs and of course it worked out, this person like came in a, a minute later all by themselves, so I didn't even have to get wet. But, um, but then I had face-to-face -face teaching and the example that Shugen used, I don't even know, I mean, I have to assume that like, I was that transparent, but like later that morning, he's like, basically like, yeah, you know, it's like when someone oversleeps and we're feeling like really bent out of shape about it, like where's the problem really? And I was like, <laughs> it's like, wow. Daito Roshi used to say we're constantly broadcasting our state of mind. I was like, okay, noted. <laughs> So what was that about? Like, what was it in me that like, I wanted my suffering seen, right? Somehow like my sense of self like validated or, or, or plumped up a bit. And like, once we start to like get onto ourselves, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting if we can have enough space so that we're not just like there caught in the wave of our suffering to sort of see like, wow, what, what are our habits and patterns? You know, when, when Gokhan was talking yesterday about like, hello, habit. Hello, pattern. Like that. Like, wow. And um, I don't think that there's a need or, or nothing is added by bringing judgment it's just seeing. It's just seeing. Looking more and more closely, all of these habits, all of these patterns, what's underneath? What's underneath? What are we protecting? Who's that self that wants to be seen, plumped up? That sense of self is steeped, is drenched, is like completely soaked through in habit and pattern. And we will go towards what is uncomfortable just because it's familiar. Check it out. We will give rise to the same uncomfortable feeling states. We will enact the same fucked up scenarios just because they're familiar. That's our sense of self, like creating and affirming itself. It's wild. Looking deeply, we can see. We don't need to judge we can start to see. Seeing it for what it is 
were no longer imprisoned in the same way. That, that tendency for the mind to turn towards what is familiar is what's talked about in, uh, in, in teachings on rebirth. That we're in the bardo, and if we're not um, kind of lucid, if we haven't trained our mind, we will naturally go, we'll be drawn back into the lower realms of rebirth because they're familiar, comfortable. The light, it's described as the light, the like kind of dull, duller, more muted lights of the like lower realms pull us in. So again, we're looking, we're seeing, we're not having to control, we're not having to vanquish, we're not having to conquer, we're not having to eliminate. When we see correctly, truly, clearly, all the way through, we see there's nothing there. We're not bound. It's just energy, habits, patterns. Please look so you can see. It starts with ourself. Sometimes I try to bring forth a very palpable sense of myself. I mean, like, I, I know what I feel like, right? We all know what we feel like. Like, I bring that up and I try and let it get like more like, pulpy and palpable, like really like there I am, there I am, there I am, so I can like look and see and watch it. This not vanquishing, not eliminating, not conquering. I was thinking of that piece by Thanissara um, that we had as a part of the Ango reading material. And she has that, one of the excerpts was on the feminine as central to awakening. At the heart of a radical response to our times is the need to balance out and undo systemic patriarchy and all it implies by bringing the feminine central, not solely as gender, but as a lived dimension within each of us. It's just a way of speaking, but it's a potent way of speaking because across history, those qualities that are sort of um, Thanissara identifies as receptivity, inclusivity, empathy, kindness, care, gentleness. She has another section where she says it's not only gentle, there's wild passion, Fierce protection, think of like the mama bear. <laughs> the Dharma protectors. But that because these qualities have been sort of exiled in, in terms of systems of power, in terms of the overculture, we're out of balance. 
And this is damaging for everybody. Everybody. Everybody needs receptivity and empathy and care and kindness. It doesn't have to do with gender. But in our kind of sick, twisted ways, we've kind of like... It's not like that. So when she talks about the feminine as central to awakening, it's these energies. (laughs) Receptivity. You know, the human experience is really characterized by having a human body. I mean, if you think about, like, what makes us human, there you go. I love that part in Gokhan's talk where he um, spoke about looking at the altar. Like, what's on the altar? A person sitting still. And in that, even in that retelling by Thich Nhat Hanh of the Buddha's um, enlightenment, it's so like, you know, it's like so embodied. His body like opens up and contains and feels the bodies of all of these other beings. And the births and the deaths, like body, 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 body of all of these other beings. And like there he is in his body, but his body's so much bigger. This body, this tired body, this aching body, this body. We go into our felt experience. So forgetting the concept or releasing the concept of the body. Like we can, we can be in our body and not recognize like we're holding a conceptual view of our body. And probably if you grew up in this culture, there's a lot of baggage with that conceptual view of your body. So letting go of that the thinking part of it, and really just like, what, what's the feeling? What's the feeling? Letting go of the idea and going to the direct experience. This is a doorway into our true body. Our true body, the ocean and the waves. Each of those waves is a real thing right? Arising and falling. But that ocean, what a vast body. Birth and death, this is a real thing. But there's a vast body. We can use the body. So at this time and session, is the mind is settling or not settling? whatever, the the body can really take the lead, right? That's part of the skillful means of the, like, fatigue and, like, kind of exhaustion factor of Sishin and of Rahatsu in particular. 
you can't keep it up. I mean, we do amazingly well. We can keep it up pretty, pretty uh, heroically, but, but the edge starts to wear. And if we can settle in the body, we may find relaxation and energy that we didn't know was there. So a few, a few things to mention about that. First of all, um, there's this book called The Wakeful Body, Somatic Mindfulness is a Path to Freedom by Lama Willa Blythe Baker, which is excellent. And in it, she, she talks about how like, we can do meditation, a practice that's a concentration practice, like working with the breath. And we can do it from kind of a top-down place, right, where like, we get distracted, we notice we get distracted, and like, we come back to, to the breath. Um, and we can be doing all of that kind of up in our head. But it's also possible to shift and to work in a very embodied way, which uh, if you haven't tried, you might find really helpful. Here's what she says. She says, the mind is distracted, but the body is not. The body is not thinking or ruminating. It is just feeling and being present, aware, and vibrant. In other words, the body is already mindful. So she says, at the moment of distraction, instead of prioritizing control, coming in kind of top down, a practitioner of somatic mindfulness releases control and allows attention to be drawn back by the body or by the feeling of the breath, which is, after all, a somatic embodied feeling. Somatic sensations such as the air in your nostrils or the rise of your diaphragm recenters attention. The return is experienced not as a discipline of effortful redirection by a higher executive function, but as a natural draw to the body's steady wakefulness, like iron filings return to a magnet. I love that. Scattered attention represents the iron filings, and the body is the magnet. So I, I've experimented with using her instruction, which I, I feel like I've found my own way to, but I like how direct her pointing is. And I also found that image of the iron filings being drawn to the magnet so that our attention is drawn to the embodied somatic experience of the breath, not controlled, but drawn. The body leads the way, she says. It is a great relief for the mind. If you're exhausted and the control factor is feeling like it's wearing you thin, you are ripe. You are ripe to cross over. We should also know that uncontrollable discursive thinking is sometimes energy 
that we've trapped in our body and we're not letting it move through. It could be that there's a feeling there, actually, under that churning. Energy that we can allow to move through our body. We can feel it move through our body. Again, not controlling, but being receptive to what's already there. And finally, to recognize all of the ways that energy is created. So the simple act of paying attention generates energy. When we're feeling sleepy or low energy or lethargic, like right there, right there, bring your awareness into full bloom. And know, too, that like, we're all like, with our, with our practice, our, 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 our energy, it's like there's a storehouse of energy in this monastery. There's a storehouse of energy. All of the wholehearted practice, the chanting, the drumming, kisaku, the chopping, sautéing, the vacuuming, all of that wholehearted practice is generating energy and you can tap into it when you need it because it's all one body. It's hopeless. It's hopeless because hope is a mental construction. Come into your body. In the belly of the beast of this Rahatsu. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.